Hey, how you doing? Brian Kane with the Mental Performance Mastery Podcast. And today I am thrilled about our guest, Dr. Doug Chadwick. Doug is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's a former NCAA college football player when Army was ranked in the top 25. And he's one of the leading mental skills coordinators and coaches in all of baseball. Doug has a unique path into his process and growth into mental performance. He studied economics at the University of Oklahoma in kinesiology and sports psychology with my mentor, Dr. Ken Revisa at Cal State Fullerton. He's also been the director of the Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point. And to just to put it blank, the guy knows as much about elite mental performance as anyone on the planet. So let's get right to it. Doug, thank you for joining us. I forgot to mention, you also got your PhD at Georgia, where I think I met you for the first time one time. The dogs, the yeah. around in Athens. Can't forget the dogs. Uh, yeah. that's too. <laughs> Doug, I appreciate you joining us, man. Would you kind of maybe get fill in the blanks for our listeners and kind of some of, of maybe your pathway into West Point and then playing football and going over and serving overseas and thank you for your service and then kind of how you ended up getting Heads Up Baseball in, I think it was Iraq, and okay. then kind of the connection to Ken Revisa up to where you are today with the Colorado Rockies. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to you know, be a part of this and uh, what you're doing for, for mental skills is, is uh, you know, raising the bar, uh, bringing this to a lot of people. And I think that's important. Um, so I'm excited, you know, the, the opportunity to share some of this with, with uh, your audience and you. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a different path for, for people pursuing this work right now. Uh, but, you know, I like to say I started on the user end. Um, which was fortunate because way back in the you know early 90s when I was going to, to West Point, um, we had a center there that did this work with us, just the performance side of things. There was a center that did the clinical side and a center that just did the performance work, and it was small. Uh, and so really it focused on, on football over a lot of other sports. Um, but um, Louis, Colonel Lewis Choka came out of the Behavioral Science and Leadership Department there started doing the work just kind of on his own time and then was given the opportunity to open that center. And that was just prior to, to me getting there and, and playing army football. So, I mean, I didn't know any different. That was just part of what we did as athletes. We had those resources. I didn't go to a different school, you know, I went to, to West point and we had them. So, uh, but for me, I think, you know, the process or, or the way that things happened while I was there as an athlete, really crystallized how important the the mental skills piece is. We were not an overly talented team, uh, at least, you know, and in, in, from the from the pundits perspective, <laughs> you know, the the uh, the experts on on college football uh, wouldn't consider us an overly talented team. I think we were ranked last in recruiting every year I was there. Um, but uh, you know, over the course of time, the, the, the team got better and better and better. And, and uh, that my senior year, we uh, we were 10 and two uh, nationally ranked, lost to uh, Syracuse with McNabb at quarterback up there at the Carrier Dome. And then uh, uh, we missed a chip shot field goal in our bowl game against Auburn, but a very good team, uh, you know, by a lot of measures. And I think a lot of that had to do with the work that we did on the mental skill side. So that really, you know, kind of established the importance of that work. Uh, but when I went off to the army uh, for the next few years, there wasn't a lot going on in the world. Um, you know, the, the cold war was over in the nineties and we were just kind of figuring things out. 
but when 9-11 happened, I was actually on my way out of, of the Army, and, and I had decided to move on and do something else. And uh, when 9-11 happened, that, that really changed my professional trajectory. Uh, my wife and I had a conversation about it right away, and it was like, you know, it's not the right time to get out. Let's try something else. So we got a, an assignment to, to Germany. And uh, soon after I got to Germany, uh, you know, we, we started making plans to uh, invade Iraq and, and that ball got rolling pretty quickly. And so I deployed after the main invasion uh, when, when we thought we had won the war <laughs> in two, way back in 2004. Uh, at the beginning of 2004, I deployed um, with an artillery unit that was supposed to be in a peacekeeping role. We were supposed to go into uh, one of the capital cities and basically just keep things calm, get their government back on their feet, and uh, and then come home. And certainly, that's not how things unfolded while I was there. Uh, you know, it really the insurgency emerged right away. And, uh, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of conflict, a lot of fighting uh, between, you know, the different uh, entities within Iraq, the governmental and the, the terrorists and, you know, the different sects of, of uh, you know, the, the Muslim population, the Kurdish. I mean, there's kind of all that unfolding in front of our eyes. And so I took a command, uh, you know, pretty, pretty quickly, a couple months into this deployment of the unit that was kind of in the mix, uh, really in the southern half of the city. So the city of you know, 335,000 people with 135 guys in the, you know, the whole southern half. And, uh, and you know, guys were getting hurt and killed and, and it was really you know, evident that this was gonna be difficult. And so right away I thought, you know, how am I gonna do this well? And so I got on the internet thinking about different ways of doing this well. And I actually talked to the folks at West Point about the potential to use some of this work, uh, some of the mental skills that could translate into better performance as, as a soldier and as a leader. And so they were in the process of, of getting uh, some things off the ground there in the same, with the same idea, the same concept that this is universal stuff. This, this is, you know, these are things that no matter what you're doing, what kind of performer you are, it'll make you better. And so right at that time, uh, so this is 2004, about mid-June of 2004, I Google sports psychology on, you know, or whatever you know, search engine it was in 2004. And, up, you know, up pops Ken Revisa because it's right after Omaha. Right. And, uh, you know, the teams that you were a part of. And uh, so first, you know, first article pops up is Ken Revisa. So I start reading about, you know, what he did during, you know, that year with, with uh, the Fullerton team. And um, I thought, well, you know, let me check this guy out. So I ordered, and Amazon was a thing back in 2004, I ordered Heads Up Baseball. And uh, I read it and the, the, you know, the simplicity of it. Uh, the applicability, the utility, you know, just being able to pick something up as a guide and go, okay, I get that. I understand how that could be. And then translate it into, you know, what we do, you know, instead of a, uh, you know, a pre at bat performance or a pre pitch performance or a routine, um, you would have, 
you know, a pre-mission routine mm. and, a, and a pre-shot routine, you know, with, with, you know, your, your, your weapon. So I was able to take that, uh, and, and, uh, you know, translate some of it in real time while I was there and, and just, you know, through good fortune and, and the needs of the, the army at the time, as they were starting up these programs, they asked if I would come back to West Point and do a master's degree in sports psych. And I said, of course, you know, that sounds like a gig I'd, I'd really can get behind. And I want to study with Ken. And, and they were like, yeah, of course, go, you know, go study under Ken if you can, you know, make it happen. So we did. And, and uh, I got the ball rolling, um, you know, to move to move back um, to the States and, and, you know, take care of that degree and, and get incredible mentorship from Ken. And then go back to West Point, do work there, help with these army programs that, uh, you know, started with with uh, Nate Zinzer back at West Point and um, and, of course, Colonel Choka. Uh, but Joe Ross came back uh, as a former football player. He was a couple of years older than me and he really helped facilitate me get, getting back there and uh, and being a part of that and and getting that stuff off the ground. He was really you know pivotal pivotal in that process of, of getting that, that the, the programs that now exist uh, into, um, into the, the installations, the army installations and into the soldiers' hands. I can, I can just, I was listening to a, a podcast that you were on earlier and you told the story about how you got heads up baseball in Iraq and sent and finally got on the phone with Ken, right? And then people who know Ken listen to this will know how hard that was back in 2004. Yeah, yeah. So you finally got on the phone with Ken and, he, and you're like, hey, I got your book in, in, in Iraq. And I can just see him going, no shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Uh, so, it was classic. <laughs> classic. You yeah. know, and it, Doug, you mentioned you started on the, use, on the user end, right? As an athlete at West Point using the Center for Enhanced Performance. And I remember about probably early 2000s or so, I saw an article. And I think it was Ken that shared, us with, it, shared it with us as a grad student. I was with him in 2002 and three. And there was an article, I think, from ESPN, the magazine, that was about the West Point Center for Performance Enhancement or Enhanced Performance. And there was like an egg chair and football players in there like visualizing. Can yeah. you kind of go back and, and talk to us about when you got started in this as a college athlete, what were some of the skills that they were trying to develop or what were some of the drills that they were having you do in, this, in the CEP Center for Enhanced Performance that you felt like were helping and beneficial to you as a college football player? Um, yeah, interesting. I do that, that, uh, that article that was in ESPN, the magazine, I remember really well, that actually includes like the officer that's working with the football players. That's Joe Ross and the the football player is a guy named Seth Nyman and Seth went on to be a special forces officer and then come back to, uh, the center and work there as well. So, uh, interesting, uh, you know, connection with that particular article, but, um, you know, so that if you say egg chair to cadets, uh, some of them, even though those who didn't work in the center will know, uh, you know, as part of their performance, they will know the egg chairs because it's such a unique piece of furniture <laughs> to have at West Point. Um, so those are they're also called the alpha chambers, but basically they're they're noise reducing or you can they have speakers in them so you can channel certain sounds in there. And so we use those chairs to help with kind of isolating and, and working on meditation and mindfulness and relaxation response and things of that nature as kind of fundamental skills 
for for our athletes or for our performers or whatever they're working on. So lots of people come in there to work on different aspects of military performance or uh, other physical requirements at West Point and academics. Um, so uh, once you know they establish that ability to kind of control the way they're thinking or understand the way that they're thinking and and sort of distance themselves from the emotion and and, and regulate, self-regulate. Then we start to use uh, some different skills, some higher level skills using the same equipment um, or even more equipment. We have large TV set up in front of them with you know, sound systems so that we can help them with uh, visualization or use um, some simulation type uh, video with them. Yeah. And, uh, and then start to pump in some of the stimulus like crowd noise. Uh, or something that's associated with their performance. So like for soldiering, that would be maybe, you know, explosions or uh, other things. You know, I remember talking to um, some guys from the, the special operations community and it wasn't, you know, they were, they were highly accustomed to explosions and, and gunfire and things like that, that didn't really bother them, but certain other things did like dogs barking. And it's like, what? It's screaming. If you've been in combat, like if you're trying to get somewhere at night and you're trying to be really quiet and sneaky, (laughs) dogs will alert, you know, and and give away your position. So that was an interesting one. But we'll try and put that stimulus into their head and get them to focus on what they need to focus on in that that environment. And then even maybe hook them up to some biofeedback Mm. um, using um, really heart rate variability. Uh, mm. primary mechanism there. So kind of taking it through the steps, uh, using the, that kind of equipment there. So, you know, you start with using it with, as a football player. Mm-hmm. What was the buy-in like there with other, other athletes in the department? I mean, this is back in early two thousands, right? Early nineties, early nineties. Well, okay. So back in the early nineties in is, you know, talk about kind of the, 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 I guess the, for lack of a better term, the, the buy-in of athletes going, Hey, I want to use this as it's going to help me. And then also when you bring it to, to Iraq and you're taking the mental skills and training that you were doing as a football player and now doing with the Rockies and using it with soldiers, what was the buy-in like there and kind of the, the difference maybe between the athletes and soldiers? Yeah. Uh, great question. So I think, you know, early on with, with the, football team, it was integrated as just, you know, this is part of what you do. And you could really tell that the coaches believed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the coaches, um, they had a weird system back then where they had to be, you know, part-time employees by the Department of Defense or something, like the Department of the Army. So like half the day, the coaches would work in the center. Some of them would work in the center. Wow. And, and create videos for us and do things that were, you know, it just made it feel like this is just what you do, you know? And so well, it, that was part of it that you could really tell the, the coaches believed. And it's, it's really varied over the years with different coaches there. Um, you know, having that center, you think, man, that, that this, you know, resources are incredible, but depending on the coach, you know, the, the different usage of, of the center and the, and the, and the resources within it, because of that, you know, varying level of belief um, in, in, you know, the value of it. So uh, for me, while I was there, Bob Sutton was our head coach. Bob's still very much involved with football. He's now uh, kind of an associate head coach level at, uh, with, the, with the Falcons. He's been in the NFL for quite a while. So Bob really, you know, uh, 
led that, but there was a number of other coaches, assistants on that staff who were totally invested and, and believed in it. And you could feel that. And so it just felt like, you know, okay, we're going to do some team building exercises. We're going to do some meditation. You know, it's just, that's kind of what you did. Well, one thing you mentioned there was, was that the coaches and some of it may have been because they were working in the, in the center, but the coaches just made it feel like part of the culture that this is what we do. Right. And I think when I look around, at least my work with some college teams and high school teams, the places where it works the best is when the coaches go, well, this isn't really mental training. This is just what we do. Now we look at it and go, okay, they're doing mental training, but like a Vanderbilt baseball, TCU baseball, it is just embedded into what they do. So in your experience in professional baseball and in, in the work that you do with other teams, is there any correlation to that in your experience too, of like the coaches that say, Hey, this is just what we do. And like, this is normal. And then we want to be elite. And this is why we do this. Have you seen that as well in your experience? Yeah. I think that's such a big part of, of the, the ability to connect with the, with the athlete is, is if they see it as, okay, now we're going to spend some time, you know, going into the theater, going into, you know, a room and doing this, and then we're going to go do baseball afterwards if they see it as being disconnected like that, it's really hard to bring it back in um, unless you're out there. And, and I have the opportunity to be with, you know, the different teams with the Rockies all the time, but you know, if you, if you separate it that way and that's the only place it exists outside of the performance environment, it makes it really tough for the athlete to, to make that transition. You know, and, and so if they're not hearing the language, if they're not seeing how this could be involved, and, and that's really, I think, where Ken changed the paradigm was it was his willingness and ability to to get himself into those environments, you know, just to be there and and not be, you know, in an office, not be in a counseling kind of a setting being in the performance environment and, and having real time conversations with the guys as they're experiencing it, mm. you know, and the guy's not being afraid to talk about it, mm. you know, as if they're broken, it's not that they're broken. It's just, here was a way that could have gone better or man, you really did that well in that, you know, at that time when we needed you to do, to do that, well, how did you do that? Let's reflect on it. Let's figure it out so we can, you know, help you do that in the long term or help others do that in the long term. Yeah, Doug, I love what you're saying here about, about how to make the connection from the classroom to the field. And that was the one thing, I mean, I, I don't know what it was like for you at Cal State Fullerton as going through it. I'd love to hear, but the thing that to me was so monumental and I don't think I knew it at the time because I couldn't have, I didn't have any experience, but now reflecting back and knowing other people who have gone through different university sports psychology programs, man, the ability to go follow Ken, like the Pied Piper and go watch him as a shadow and see him work with Fullerton, Long Beach, Angels, UCLA, to see, to have him bring in, you know, Ironman world champions who he was working with, bring in Michael Powell, who was the world record, uh, you know, long jump holder, like almost jumped the first down. It was like 29 and a half feet. And he was our track coach. He comes in and Ken had him talk for three hours about his pre jump routine. Mm -hmm. And you know, to be able to see him work and how exactly he did what you did of making the connection from the classroom to the field. I just don't, I, I thought that's what everyone did, but I don't think that's the case in the field. I don't think people coming up through it necessarily always get to get that experience with a mentor and get to watch them do the work. Have you, have you experienced that at all? I, I agree with you fully there. I mean, there's just no, no comparing Ken is the, you know, the master mentor. Uh, and it wasn't as if he was, 
you know, he did that in the classroom. He brought, you know, interesting people. And, but I mean, there was a few select few. And I think I was pretty lucky because he gave me a, you know, a free pass because I was going straight out of Iraq to just follow him around. Yeah. But he wouldn't do that for everybody. You had to sort of earn your way into into that op- those opportunities with him. Mm. Um, and but I mean, there's just no way there's a better mentor that's ever existed in this field. There's, there, there, it's hard to imagine there's been better practitioners. But the way that he allowed you in the room with people who you had no business being in the room with, that was just uh, really special. But you know, you gotta. You got to see it, you know, and you got to experience how even the, you know, him as a master at that level, there would be awkward moments and how he would work his way through that and how he would make connections with people who were in a sport he'd never played or never really worked with or had much experience with and and just find a way to, to tap into um, you know, their specialness and their uniqueness and their, you know, get them to tell their story. Mm. Um, he was, he was phenomenal at that. So super unique, uh, experience getting to work with him. You know, I, that's really set me up and, and I know a lot of us, you know, over the long term, uh, just, just having that, that ability to watch him, uh, do his work and, and make the connections with people, um, you know, at, at all levels, kids and adolescents and, you know, adults and just everybody, uh, and, and, and do the work, you know, figure out how to make them better. Hmm. Yeah. It's, and I think that, I think you, again, you want to kind of come back to, and there's, there's so much I want to talk about here. And I want, you know, in terms of your, your time in, in, in combat and what you've taken, some of the slogans that you've taken from your time in, in the military and brought to the Rockies. And I know some of the things that I, that I've heard you say, uh, I'm kind of a closet stalker, Doug, I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan, you know, so some of the things you said about like the enemy gets a vote. You know, yeah. things that I want to dive into, but I, I want to stay with this concept for a second of of the connection from classroom to field, because I think for our listeners, the athletes are going to go, OK, how, how do I do that? I've been in a classroom, but I don't know what to do on the field or the coaches are going to say, huh, OK, we we do it in a classroom. Maybe we watch videos or but we don't necessarily then bring it onto the field. So how do you now, Doug, is, is one of the leaders in mental performance skills training in all of baseball, how do you work either with the Rockies or with the individual clients in terms of bringing it from the field, from the classroom out to the field? Like, what's your process and how do you do that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really like to see what it's going to look like in terms of my work. If, if my work is just going to be in the classroom, I'll start right away with there's going to be limited effect here. I, they may learn, learn some things, but then bringing those things to life when they need them, creating these habits that'll be there under pressure, that has to be practiced. So if they just hear it one time, I can do that and you can pay me a lot of money to do that if you want. (laughs) But, you know, I love to be a part of the practice. I love to see them, you know, do great work uh, in preparation. So one of those things that you kind of brought up there is, is, you know, the things that I bring from the military, I try not to put my experiences from combat on the athlete. You know, I I think it helps validate using the mental skills, but I don't want them to think this is any bigger than it is because most athletes, you know, who are seeking mental skills or mental performance assistance, they are already invested. <laughs> they already, this is already super important to them. And I don't need to put life or death on them because they're already, they're already going there. 
Yeah, there is. Yeah, and as Ken would say, if you if it's life and death, you're going to die a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, for for a pro athlete, it is their livelihood. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not going to downplay the importance of it at all. I just don't want to overdo it. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm when I'm talking to them about, you know, what this is going to look like, I'm talking to whoever's bringing me in, or you know, it's in my work with the with the Rockies, which is organic. You know, I'm I'm not looking to just do a presentation and move on mm. this. Ha- you know, I have to spend some time in practice. So one of the things that I use that a lot with with the rocks and, and you know, even in, in private practice that comes from the military is train as you fight, mm-hmm. train as you fight. Uh, and, and in baseball, that's super tough. Mm. Uh, it just we don't practice the way we play ball games. Uh, BP does not look like hitting in a ballgame. Bullpens does that's not like pitching in a ballgame. Um, and, and those are our two primary ways of getting ready. And, and even like infield work, you know, ground ball after ground ball, ground ball, you know, stuff like that. It's just not how you play a ball game. There's so much time. And the thing with baseball is there's so much time in between pitches to think. And, and you really have to practice that process. So train as you fight is a big one that I bring in regardless of what sport, but I think with baseball, it's, it represents, it, 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 there is some, there are some, some real challenges with that just because of the way we've, we've done it in the past. Um, and, and so, you know, even if it's just, let's make the, the bullpen more competitive, you know, put some stakes on it so that you have to use the routine. You have to use the breath. You have to use the thought management and, and get to the next pitch rather than just going, you know, this is all about, you know, my mechanics or my grip or, you know, the, the things that, that go into executing what, when you're competing, you're not thinking about, or you shouldn't be. Mm. You know, I love that you talk about kind of the ways of, of train as you fight and trying to make like even go back to to the 90s when you're at West Point and you're in the egg chair and people listen to this you got to check out Google egg chair and you'll see what we're talking about but it's basically a chair where they can pump music in and you're hearing the crowd noise and you're watching video and there's a visualization component and a preparation component that goes with that so you were training as you play at West Point when you were watching that video and now here we are 30 years later or so trying to get baseball to train like they fight more competitive bullpen, you know, instead of having a four seam fastball coming 52 miles an hour over the plate, you know, hitting off of a machine where the closure rate of the ball coming at you, I know they do this in Japan a lot where they'll put the, the machine even behind the mound and crank it up to like 110, 120. So the ball, you see it a little longer because it's coming from further away, but the closure rate in terms of the time of it getting on you would be like a 95 mile an hour fastball. So right. I think there, I think there's a lot of, a lot of gains that can be made there by coaches one of the things you also talked about, I wanted you to kind of dig into, which I think is awesome, is that the enemy gets a vote or the enemy has a say. Can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I I love that one. It's not mine at all. It's you know something that's been used in the military for a long time. But you know, I think it's a way of of pushing you to embrace the process because you are not in control of the outcome. You know, and so in in combat. You could do everything right and still lose soldiers or still get hurt uh, because the bad guys might be pretty good, too, or lucky, you know, and and there's things that so so instead of just, uh, you know, lamenting about, well, it's not in my control, 
the the point here is you, you give yourself a much better shot when you focus on the process. Mm-hmm. And and so you know you you can control everything about the way you go into the next pitch. You know everything you go into the next shot, you can control. And and the emotional stability there is really important. So if you and in if you can indeed control that, and it helps you perform better. Well, that's what you should be focusing on and not the outcome. Because if you're worried about, okay, I I can't pitch this particular, I can't throw this particular pitch in this situation because this guy has the ability to, you know, and he if he hits it and, and my third baseman has had an off day, you know, you start going down those, those paths of the outcome, the thing that you can't control, you're getting yourself away from the process of controlling yourself. Hmm. And as Ken would always say, right? Rule one, a heads up baseball, you got to be in control of yourself before you can control your performance. And you got very little control of what goes on around you, but total control of how you choose to respond to it. And I think, you know, in in my work, the concept of controlling what you can control comes up daily. I think it's such a monumental piece of mental performance that whether you're a football player, whether you're in combat, whether you're a major league baseball player, or you're, you're a parent who's a stay at home mom. Mm Controlling what you can control and choosing your response is massive, massive level of mental toughness. Doug, are there there other principles like controlling what you can control, emotional stability, giving yourself the best chance for success when you focus on the process, training as you fight? Um, Is there other principles that you instill with the athletes you're working with, with the Rockies that you feel like the average person, everyday person listening to this can use in their daily life? Uh, You know, I think... The thing that I hit on so much with with our uh, with our players at, at, at all levels is the self awareness, the the continual focus on self awareness. Um, I think that for everybody, that's that's a huge and critical component to your performance. You know, so the more you understand about yourself, the way that you think, the way that you communicate you know, the way that other people perceive you. So it's not just this, you know, internal reflection. It could be, you know, dialogue with, with people and getting feedback. Um, but, but just writing some things down each day, you know, about what, what happened mm. and why it happened. You know, I think that there's, there's one more piece, I think, that I steal directly from the Army is the after action review structure, the AAR. Yeah, go into the and, unpacked half for us. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a simple idea that, you know, whenever you go through some experience, you should learn something from it. And the after action review, whether it's a really formal or in structured, structured way, or just in, in a, you know, communication style and, and a way that you can extract some of the things you, you learned as a group. Um, but it, it includes three basic steps. You know, one, number one was what was the plan? So it's a review of what was what were you trying to do there? And there's a huge assumption wrapped around that is that you had a damn plan. <laughs> or I knew the plan, right? <laughs> you knew what the, you were supposed to do. Yeah. Um, so step one, easy, as easy as it is to say, what was your plan? You know, did you have one and what was it? And so it's a review of that. And then step two is what happened? So what what came out of that? And then, you know, not just in terms of the outcome, but how you were during that process. How did you experience it? What things can you, you know, 
dig into where, where things derailed or things went really well. Cause we like to go right into the things that didn't go well right. and not focus on the stuff that went well. So, I mean, we're not just, you know, the first rule of an after action review is thick skin. So you, you gotta be able to be, you know, vulnerable here and just get after what happened but don't lose the good lessons there. We want to dig in on the stuff that could have gone better, but also capture the stuff that went really well and, and how it went really well and how you were as it was going well. Love that. So I got, I got at the after action review. Let's keep keep unpacking this. You talked about one rule one, have thick skin, be vulnerable, be open to that feedback. It's the only way we get better. But step one is what was the plan? What was I trying to do? Step two was what happened? What was step three of the AAR? What did I learn? What did, what, what did we get out of this? What are we going to do with that information? You know, so I just put what, are, you know, what did we learn? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when, when you think about it, it can, it, it's kind of a cyclical process. Cause if you've got an every day, what did I learn? Well, then that should be playing into your plan for the next day totally. or for the next week. Totally. Right. So, so I, I, I steal that directly from, you know, the, my army experiences as well. You know, that, that process of, of continual reflection, uh, and using a structured approach to do that. Um, it doesn't always require that though. You know, if you plan to take a day off and watch Netflix all day, you don't need to reflect on that. I don't think, I don't know if you want to. Or you say, I did, I did what I said I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, so I mean, but just as a habit, uh, you know, so daily reflection of finding some ways to capture what happened to you and how you learn uh, or what you learn is huge. Uh, so I think for me, that's, that's where I spend a lot of my time working with guys is, you know, what are you learning? How are you, how are you knowing yourself better? Who are you talking to? And, and, in, and baseball, that's a tough thing. Cause in pro sports, I think that's a tough thing. Cause so many people want your ear. So many people want to help, uh, you know, in, inside and outside of the organization. So many people want to jump on, on your bandwagon. And so you got to be careful about who, who you're tapping into, you know, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's parents who mm. are really tough there for, for the athlete uh, to, to, to filter, you know, what, what's helping and what's, what's too much and what's taking me in a direction I don't need to go, you know? Well, and, and the mentality of like, Hey, what got you here won't get you there. Right. It's one of my favorite books by Marshall Goldsmith, where he talks about, you know, you get to a certain level of performance, whether it's as an athlete in a position of leadership, where there's a certain skill set that maybe gets you to that level. But if you stay at that level and you keep doing what you've done, like you're not going to make it at that level or advance. And I think for a lot of, a lot of good young baseball players, in my experience is part of why they're good is maybe they had a parent who invested in them and coached them when they were young. But at some point that parent doesn't have the awareness to go, my kid knows more than I do now. My kid's high school coach who does this professionally knows more than I do now. The professionals in baseball know more than I do now and they can't cut them loose. Do you experience that even in pro baseball? Yeah, no doubt. It's super hard because the kids, you know, the players, there's so much love it comes from a place of love yeah. most of the time. And sometimes it comes from a place of greed, which is, you know, unfortunate uh, or ego, you know? Um, but most of the time it's coming from a place of they really care. You know, the parents really care and they want to see their kids succeed. Uh, but it, it does, it, there's a tipping point and, and it gets overwhelming and it's really hard for the performer to cut the parent off 
um, you know, or old coaches, you know, that, that want to help. Uh, and, and, you know, they try to, they try to insert things and they don't have all the information. They don't know what the, the, you know, professional athlete is being coached on every day. Mm. Uh, so they don't have that insight and, uh, it just, it, it makes, it makes it hard. So you got to filter who you're, who you're communicating with and how you're communicating. And, and so those, those conversations with parents, you know, I think early on, and I talked to young players about this is, you know, start thinking about this now, you know, start thinking about having that conversation an adult conversation with family members and friends and, and former coaches about wh- how you can, how they can help not cutting them off necessarily, but just what kinds of conversations are going to be helpful. Like, let's talk about, you know, what's going on and, you know, how many fish did you catch when you went out the other day, whatever, just something that's different. Cause I'm, you know, I'm living in baseball all the time. And, and so I think that's a, that's an important thing. P- important part of that self-development journey is in self-awareness journey is, is understanding, you know, how you're getting your feedback doing your own reflection and getting some feedback from people who, you know, are decision makers and, and really who know what they're, what they're talking about relative to where you're at in life right now. That's great. Great, great feedback there. You know, Doug, I want to be respectful of your time here. I got just a couple more questions for you. Um, And, and, you know, two things that I know I've, I've heard you talk about in in another podcast as I was preparing for this one is, is I want to talk about consistency. I want to talk about breathing. Yeah. And could you kind of talk about those two critical topics for athletes who want to be successful at the highest level? And just, I think just for everyday life performance, maybe we'll start with consistency, then have you go to breathing. And then I got our final question after that. Okay. All right. Well, I think, you know, a big part of the consistency piece is, you know, as we talked about earlier, having some structure and controlling your controllables. And that could be, you know, really a cliche statement. You can hear that a lot, but what does that mean? And, and, you know, you know, not only as a, as a practitioner, but as a performer yourself, how important it is to have some structure and, and really control how, what your life looks like in those moments that you can control them. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're doing, if you're in a race that time during the race, you know, that, that schedule is not necessarily under your control, what time you have to show up and check in, but control that process. Like, like, you know, a madman go, you know, backwards plan from from the 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 shotgun start backwards plan from the uh you know first pitch what time you need to you know be in your uniform what time do you need to have food you know what kind of food what kind of rest when are you going to do some meditation when are you going to do some visualization when are you going to do some breathing Mm -hmm. you know and and take care of all that stuff that you have control over Mm-hmm. The rest of it will, you know, you're putting yourself in, in a better, you know, the enemy gets a vote, but you're putting yourself, you're increasing the odds of success by controlling things. And I think that's really helpful in terms of consistency, because that's a separator at, at, at the professional level. And, and baseball is unique because we got all these levels, you know, that you got to navigate the, the crucible of minor league baseball that you have to navigate before you get to the show. But the difference, you know, is, is really inconsistency with the, with the big league guys. They're just, I mean, they're, they're incredible athletes, but a lot of these guys are, and they're consistent. They're just, they are able to do what they're able to do under pressure consistently. 
you know, you've talked, you know, talked about the performance under pressure and also like the, the kind of mental self-regulation. I'm trying to say the exact, the, the, the term that you used here, that in terms of like being in control of yourself, emotional stability, yeah, we've talked yeah. about the, and you've mentioned the breath in combat, you know, I'm sure there was a breath before a play in football, the breath before the pitch in baseball we see. Would you talk about the importance of breathing in high-level performance? Yeah, and it's it's so – I think it's funny, and maybe the, the, the players don't, but I just I, – you know, after all, you, you went through my my laundry list of, of educational experiences at the beginning of this, and, and most of the time I end up talking about the brain. Right. You know, of all the things I've learned, it's just such an important piece of it. And it really works in a couple of ways. Um, we know that it's our path. It's a, the thing that we can control in terms of controlling your controllables. It's the thing that we can control in the part of our, our nervous system that wants to happen automatically. The auto, you know, the, the, the ANS, the autonomous nervous system, autonomic, I don't lost my words there, autonomic nervous system those things are going to happen. The fight or flight response is going to happen and we can just let it happen in a way that will be productive or counterproductive, or we can tap into that system and tap into the, the process of balancing it using the breath. Mm. And, and what the way we see that, that's why we use heart rate variability, HRV is we see that in terms of the consistency and from beat to beat to beat at the time, it changes when we use the breath. So we know our, it shows people like your physiology is changing by just by breathing differently. And so taking those nice, deep diaphragmatic breaths, paced breath, and here's, here's where the other side of it comes in. And this is, you know, all, a lot of, uh, you know, Ken here is, you know, you think of where in time you could be. And, and so you could be in three places in time. You could be in the past, which we love to do, you know, what happened, what just happened, rather than thinking about all the success we've had, what just happened in terms of recent failure. Uh, we could be in the future, which is focusing on the outcome, or we could be in the present where the good stuff happens, you know, where we can actually control things uh, to a certain extent. And what the breath can do is bring it into the moment. Mm. We know that you can have only one conscious thought at a time. And if your thought is focused on the breath and that's in the moment, it brings you back into the moment. Mm. So if you're just pacing, you're just counting the breath, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, and finding that transition from the inhale to the exhale, that process brings you right back to where you need to be. So such a huge, you know, tool. It's a, it's an important tool for self-regulation and for that that you know, sort of metaphysical where in time are we? <laughs> you know, and it sounds so simple, right? But I can imagine it, it's 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 difficult. You know, it's difficult. I'm sure when there's gunfire and you're in combat, it's difficult when you're playing in front of forty thousand people at the major league level. I mean, heck, I'm just learning how to play golf still haven't broke a hundred and I teach this for a living and it's difficult for me to take a breath before every shot and there's nothing yeah. happening around, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I think it's, it's funny. I remember Ken used to say, he'd say, oh, my work, if I had to, to, to hear 80% of the time, what's the thing that stuck out the most, it would be breathing. Mm -hmm. I think it, I, I would echo that from my experiences. It would be breathing and controlling what you can control is about 80% of what people, when I ask them, what difference did this make for you? That's what they come back to. 
Yeah. So yeah. Doug, I want to want to thank you for coming on the podcast. My last question for you. Uh, where can people engage with you? Do you have a, a Twitter or an Instagram? Is there anywhere that people can kind of pick up some more from Dr. Doug? Oh, this is my least favorite question. <laughs> I, I, I don't do well with this. Uh, right now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Brian. I'm just, you know, immersed and enjoying my work with the Rockies. Yeah. I have such a great opportunity there to, to dive in and get as much done with these, with these coaches and, and athletes and even, you know, members of the front office. So I, I, right now I just, I get to do, and in the army, that's kind of hard because you're in leadership roles that, that pull you into administrative work all the time and, and same in academe, yep. right now I just get to do. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. It's been a few years, um, you know, getting to do that. I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon, but at some point I got to expand, you know, the, the, the work, uh, and, and I, as much as I love baseball and you can't work in baseball, if you, if you don't absolutely love it, cause it's, there's so much baseball <laughs> during baseball season, the games are long and, and there's, you know, different affiliates and stuff playing all night. Um, but I, you know, doing other work, doing work with, with different populations, high risk populations, medical populations, other sports, that kind of stuff is is exciting to me. I'm looking forward to doing that. But for right now, at least, especially right now with the you know the pandemic and things going on, just doing the work for our guys is really rewarding, and uh, and that's where I'm at. So awesome. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have uh, you know the handles and things to, to pass along. We do do that internally, and in that we got really good at that. I had great friend who's transitioning out, who's retiring from the Army, is Lieutenant Colonel Andy Reese. Who helped us this year? Andy was pivotal in starting those army programs as well, and Andy really got us off the ground with some some uh, social media stuff this year. But it was all internal, um, so that's where I'm at with that stuff. Well, well respected, well said, Doug. I appreciate you taking time to yeah. jump on the Mental Performance Mastery podcast with us today and kind of share some of your very unique and very cool experience. So. Uh, it's been a privilege for me, something I've been looking forward to for a long time. So, and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a ton out of this. Thank you, Dr. Doug Chadwick. Go rocks. All right. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Brian Kane mental performance podcast on the ironclad content network. If you liked the show, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brian Kane peak. I'll see you next time.